Hello, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland, one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. It's a pleasure to be here virtually at San Diego Comic-Con at home to discuss Ultra Lawyer Kaiju Patrol, where we will have monster legal analysis. My co-counsel for this presentation include Bethany Benford, Nari Ely, and Toms Harper. And I'll ask each of them to introduce themselves now, starting in alphabetical order with Bethany. Hi, my name's Bethany. I am a complex technology lawyer for Dury Tongri. I deal a lot with intellectual property issues, but also a lot of random First Amendment issues, and very happy to be here. Um, Nari. My name is Nari Ely. I currently work for the U.S. courts. Um, but previous to that, I worked for a uh, labor and employment firm called James and Hoffman, and also uh, Kirkland and Ellis doing civil litigation. Uh, so a little bit of a broad experience range, uh, but I'm really excited to be here. And I'm Thomas Harper. I currently serve in the Army Reserves, where I'm a Deputy Regional Defense Counsel. I uh, served on active duty as a JAG officer for a little over seven years, got out in 2018 and switched to the reserve side, and I also am in private practice where I uh, do litigation, general counsel work, and some other fields. Fantastic. Well, let's jump into our agenda for today. We're going to discuss shelter-in-place orders because those happen a lot in kaiju incidents. First Amendment issues from Mothra damage to public property, genocide, the insanity defense, patentability, common carriers, national defense, and of course, property rights, all framed with kaiju issues. First up, let's talk about shelter in place. Nari? Yeah, so the backdrop for this topic is an episode of the classic Ultraman from 1966, uh, Terrifying Cosmic Rays. So in this episode, the basic premise is that there are mysterious unknown rays that are coming down from certain stars at night that when they hit drawings of kaiju that are left out in the open, that kaiju uh, will actually become three-dimensional, come to life uh, the next day. So in this episode, <laughs> there's a, a kid who draws a kaiju at school. Everyone thinks it's dumb. He loves it. So he draws it on a pipe in a uh, random construction yard. And of course, it gets hit by these cosmic rays and comes to life the next day. Um, everyone is very scared of it. However, it seems to want to do nothing more than nap. It's very adorable. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, the next day, his friends help make it a little more dangerous. It still wants nothing but to nap, but this time it does so in downtown uh, Tokyo and looks much scarier. <laughs> So what happens, of course, is that there is a shelter-in-place order that goes into effect. And in this episode, you can see, uh, you know, various Japanese people standing around in their offices and looking through the windows, uh, looking at this sleeping kaiju. Nobody's out in the streets. There's no traffic. Um, and, of course, this is an actual thing that happens, as I think a lot of us in the United States are well aware of. Um, but it brings up the interesting legal questions about, you know, where does the authority to issue a shelter-in-place order or the related quarantine order come from? Um, and what are the limits? So first, to just briefly talk about the origins, uh, states uh, generally have what's called general police power. Their powers are only limited by what is explicitly withdrawn from them by the Constitution. Federal government, of course, is the opposite. It has only the powers that are explicitly granted by the Constitution. So generally speaking, this is going to be uh, state authority is going to be the source of a shelter-in-place order. They have pretty broad powers to protect public uh, safety and public health. 
There are, of course, limits to this, however. Um, so, for example, in a case in California called Juhovi Williamson um, from 1900, uh, the, the city tried to quarantine an entire block of Chinatown of 15,000 residents, approximately. Um, and, of course, for the purpose that they were trying to discriminate against people of Chinese descent. Um, and a court in California struck this down as violating the 14th Amendment. Um, and the really uh, colorful interesting language here is that they, they ruled that it was uh, that health officials had done the quarantine for racial motivations and had acted with, quote, an evil eye and an unequal hand. So, of course, even though the state has pretty broad powers during public safety or public health crises, uh, they don't have unlimited powers. There are still very important limits to that. At the end of the episode, you know, the cosmic rays are over, they, they, they've stopped showing up every night. Um, but our, our heroes, the, spe uh, the science special search team, um, walk through a playground in which there are kids drawing dozens and dozens of kaiju. And they comment, you know, in, any of these might one day become a kaiju if the cosmic rays return. But the narrator says, the freedom to draw pictures of what they, of what they like belongs to the children. Uh, but... But is the government actually helpless here <laughs> to stop this? So the usual test that applies in when you're trying to restrict, you know, expressive content or speech um, is strict scrutiny, at least when it comes to a content-based regulation. This one is definitely going to be content-based because they only care about drawings of kaiju. It doesn't seem like anything else comes to life. Um, uh, so it's definitely content-based. But so the, the test under strict scrutiny is uh, that you have to have a compelling, it has to serve a compelling government interest, so the highest possible government interest, um, and it has to be narrowly tailored, meaning it has to ban no more speech than is necessary to achieve that stated compelling interest. Um, so, you know, whether or not the government can actually do something here depends a little bit on how they word the law. Um, but for example, you could have, you know, a law that uh, simply doesn't allow you to uh, have outdoor exposed drawings of kaiju that are left. Um, if you instead tried to ban all of the drawings of kaiju, no matter where they were stored, <laughs> I think you might run into problems there. Um, and this is, of course, a really fun instance because there are lots of times when people try to argue that speech produces, you know, uh, serious harm, for example, imminent uh, threats of violence or things like that. And it's a very tricky argument most of the time. In this case, this is a very easy open and shut one. The drawings of kaiju destroy cities. <laughs> ah, but Nari, how do you define a drawing of a kaiju? Yeah, that would be also a tricky one. So um, depending on how it's defined, yeah, so it's a, a, uh, laws can be void for vagueness. Um, and that's especially true in First Amendment law, where you're trying to avoid chilling speech that is actually lawful, but people are afraid of breaking the law. <laughs> um, so yeah, you would have to have, a, if the law did not adequately define kaiju, that might also be unconstitutional. All right, now to everyone's favorite legal threat, defamation. And we're specifically going to be talking about the movie Mothra, uh, in which Clark Nelson uh, realizes that a Japanese newspaper is about to publish a story of him having kidnapped two of Mothra's fairies against their will and forcing them to perform in an exhibition. Um, now, he threatened to sue the newspaper for defamation, which begs the question, could he have won this lawsuit? So, the elements of defamation. First, you have to have an intentional publication. What this means is, it doesn't mean it has to be an official publication, like in print or in any sort of official manner, 
manner. It just means that you intentionally put this out into the world. So it wouldn't, wouldn't qualify as intentional as if you were accidentally caught on a hot mic saying something to someone private, and uh, this wouldn't count as an intentional publication. Uh, the second criteria is that it must be a statement of fact, which means that this can't be an opinion. It can't be puffery. It can't be bloviating. It, it can't be, uh, you know, you just expressing a strong feeling. Like if I were to call Nari a liar, that would most likely not be defamation, even if Nari could actively pr prove that she's never lied in her life. Uh, now, number three is that it must be false. Uh, we'll talk about that and the privileged communications more in a little bit. Um, but number five is that you must have done this at least negligently. Like there was some standard of care that you did not fulfill in making this publication, whether it was to ascertain the truth or um, in terms of the speech that is at issue there. But... For public figures, the standard is a little bit different. So if you're a private individual, the standard is at least negligence. For public figures, the statement must have been made with actual malice. That means that there must be, you must know that the statement was false or that you recklessly disregarded whether it was false or not. So the question here, I'm gonna throw this out to Josh. Josh, do you think Nelson was a public figure? Absolutely. He's like an evil James Cameron or Elon Musk. Sure, he's not elected to any office, but he's got money, he likes press, he goes on adventures because he's an international man of mystery. And after taking at gunpoint the fairies from Infant Island, he forces them to perform in a vaudeville musical where they fly in in a little carriage. He introduces the show where they are exploited he absolutely is a public figure. Okay, well, counterpoint to that, he is a private businessman doing things that many business businessmen do commonly, whether it's explore or find new business ventures. He did not uh, explore the island as an official representative of the Reliscan government. He was simply a private individual who happened to be leading that expedition. Uh, yes, he is in the show and he introduces it, but you know, you introduced us in this show. That Does that make you a public figure, Josh? In this uh, terms of Comic-Con at home, probably a limited comic uh, public figure because of what we're talking about. Now, there is a good issue whether or not he is a quasi-government figure because they're sent to Infant Island because of the shipwrecked sailors who were drinking berry juice that kept them from getting radiation poisoning. So there is a quasi-government mission here that's mixed with a private enterprise for sending him as part of this expedition to Infant Island to find this uh, juice that kept these sailors from having radiation poisoning. So with that as a background, I will stand by. He is a public figure. We have plenty of businessmen in this world who like getting in front of a microphone, naming their kids after symbols. Yeah, they're public figures. Absolutely. And he clearly is a public figure. All right, all right, I concede, but I don't concede the rest of the case, so let's move on. <laughs> a typical libel defendant or defamation defendant has several ways that they can prove they can't be liable for defamation. Now, the first one is what I said was true. Uh, truth is always an absolute defense to defamation. I think that one of the interesting things here is that in this movie, 
we as the viewers know the objective truth of what happened. We know they were kidnapped. We know that they're not there um, on their own will. We know uh, that the, the natives of that island were ruthlessly slaughtered in this kidnapping. However, uh, a jury in the situation probably would not know all those facts as objective truth. And I think in this case, Nelson would argue, hey, I am not, was not a kidnapper. I was a liberator. These women were being held by the natives as hostages. And I, um, you know, have given them an economic livelihood. And they're really happy. See how happy they are singing and performing in this show. Uh, and it would really be up to the jury in this this circumstance to decide uh, which framing of the truth they really thought was true. One of the strategies that people like my client, Clark Nelson, often employ is not that they want to win a defamation case. They just want to create such legal fees and such headache for the person that they're suing that the person decides to just take down the speech rather than deal with the process of going through a lawsuit. Lawsuits are expensive. They're time consuming. Even if you win they're just a pain to go through. Um, and for this reason, uh, a lot of states have created something called uh, an anti-slap motion. Strategic, it's anti-strategic lawsuit against public participation. And what you can do with an anti-slap is you can bring an early motion in a case that says, this is a frivolous lawsuit that is based on me expressing my First Amendment rights. Um, so when you bring this motion, there are a few things that happens to make it easier. One, there's an automatic stay of discovery, which means, you know, discovery is the most expensive and time consuming part of a lawsuit. So you don't have to deal with that. It's immediately appealable. So even if you lose the motion, you can immediately appeal it to an appellate court and the case is still stayed pending appeal. And then if you win, and this is the, the huge thing in many states, you'll get attorney's fees. Uh, which means, you know, typically in the American system, you have to pay your own attorney fees. But here, um, you will, uh, the other side will have to pay your attorney fees if you win the motion. And so these are a huge incentive, um, or a huge disincentive rather for people bringing uh, defamation lawsuits because there are a chance that they'll lose early and they'll have to pay all the fees. Um, and it was this, these um, types of Motions were created specifically for these situations in which you have a very powerful person who is just trying to bully someone into compliance with a lawsuit. So I think that would very much apply in this case. And uh, hopefully the, uh, the Japanese newspaper could um, get themselves into a district that has uh, an anti-slap law. So Here we're going to be talking about last year's movie, uh, King of the Monsters, and specifically that culminating battle between <clears throat> King Ghidorah and Godzilla, in which 90% of the world's supply of clam chowder was tragically destroyed as they fought in Boston. And to set up this scene, just to refresh everyone's memory, you have young Madison Russell here, who decides to take the Orca machine, uh, this machine that's built to, to communicate with Kaiju on their frequency, uh, to Boston, she takes it to Fenway Park, sets it off, thereby attracting King Ghidorah, who at that point in time was in Washington, D.C., wreaking all sorts of havoc. Uh, and ultimately, the idea is to, to try to draw in and have a battle. And for the humans, uh, they know that at this point in the movie, all of their conventional weapons aren't working. All the bombs, the tanks, the missiles, they're having no effect on King Ghidorah. He's just too powerful. Well, who do you turn to if you're the United States military other than a bigger, badder weapon 
which is Godzilla. And unfortunately, at this point in the movie, Godzilla is all jacked up from his last fight. And I don't mean jacked up in the good sense. I mean, he's really, really hurting. Uh, and he's at the center of the earth, slowly recharging uh, by feeding off of, of uh, nuclear uh, sort of radi- radiation down there. The military decides to jumpstart this process. You see Dr. Surizawa heroically sacrifice himself there, manually detonating a nuclear bomb, supercharging Godzilla, sending him off, knowing that he's going to fight uh, King Ghidorah in Boston. So with Godzilla being used as a weapon, what we're talking about here is the law of armed conflict. And you're probably sitting there very skeptical about this entire idea of using or applying laws to something as destructive as uh, Warfare. I mean, it's an inherently chaotic uh, event in which things get blown up and people die, right? But there is a complex web of international law, uh, domestic law, regulations, uh, treaties, all sorts of things that come together and have come together over the course of millennia to form what we know now today as the law of armed conflict. And at the core of the law of armed conflict, or LOAC for short, are four key principles, that of necessity, distinction, unnecessary suffering, and proportionality. Today, we're going to be talking about one of these in the context of Godzilla, and that's proportionality. Now, what proportionality doesn't mean is that you have to match weapon size to weapon size. So by that, I mean, you don't have to, you're you're not prohibited from using Godzilla against, say, uh, one of Mothra's, larva just because Godzilla is bigger any more than you're prohibited from using a tank against uh, an enemy infantry soldier because the tank is bigger and uh, makes a bigger boom. What proportionality is, is a balancing test for a military commander to take into account in which on one side, the collateral damage or the expected loss of civilian life, the expected destruction of civilian property can't be excessive in relation to the direct military advantage gained in that strike. What do we we know is going to happen? What does the U.S. military know is going to happen uh, now that they've sent Godzilla off to war against King Ghidorah in Boston? Well, you're going to lose Fenway Park. That's for certain. No more foot-long hot dogs there. And if you're a Yankees fan that's watching this, you're not shedding any tears. You're going to lose uh, approximately 65% of the world's Dunkin' Donuts. And most tragic of all for Patriots fans, you're going to lose uh, the great Bill Belichick. Again, if you're not a Patriots fan, you might not be shedding a tear. So the expected loss of civilian life and property on one hand is tremendous. And as this battle plays out, Boston gets obliterated. I, I don't know that there's much more than... Uh, a little soup bowl left when King Ghidorah and Godzilla get done with it. Nari, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, I know that not everybody may be a fan of Boston, but is the calculus different because we're talking about a battle like this or use of force on U.S. soil with U.S. citizens in the crosshairs? So in theory, I would say no. And that's because proportionality is supposed to be a neutral principle, right? A law, law of armed conflict is a little bit unique because it doesn't take into account that the fact that you think you're, you're in the right or that your war is just. It's supposed to apply um, to you and your opponent because the assumption is both of you are abiding by it um, when, when you're dealing with the other civilians. But so it doesn't, it shouldn't change when you're looking at your own. If it, if it did, if you applied a different standard when it came
blame to your own civilians and your own civilian property, it, it wouldn't really be a neutral principle. Um, of course, that may not actually be how it works on the ground. Uh, Tom, what other things might come into play there? Well, I think if you're a New Yorker, you might think that the average Bostonian's life is not worth a peanut. Uh, <laughs> but you're, you're going to, to think about, and you have to think about at the core, what your objective is. Are you trying to destroy a tree that somebody is hiding behind? Or in this case, are you trying to destroy arguably the strongest kaiju that's ever existed? King Ghidorah at this point in the movie has not just hatched but or, or ex escaped his, uh, uh, his sort of frozen existence. Uh, he has grown to be the biggest threat to the entire earth, right? And so I think, Nara, you're right on, on the money that the loss even of our own citizens and our own property, uh, no matter what your, your view of Boston is, uh, is going to sort of pale in comparison to the military advantage that's gained by destroying a monster like this. And at this point in the movie, we see exactly how destructive King Ghidorah is. There, there is no question about his destructive power. He's just laid waste to the city of Washington, D.C. that's now under at least 40, 42 feet of water because you see destroyers and some other large naval vessels uh, floating inland there. And uh, he's so powerful that he nearly destroyed Godzilla. And uh, so, so being able to take out a kaiju like this is, is, is not going to be, or I, I guess even the loss of all of Boston itself is not going to be excessive in relation to being able to take out this threat that's going to spell you know, the doom of the entire United States, if not the world. So I do think this is a clean strike from a proportionality standpoint. Let's talk about Ultraman, specifically the second episode, Shoot the Invader. So let's break down the issues of this classic Ultraman monster. So the Bolton homeworld has been destroyed by a mad scientist with nuclear weapons. So all of these Boltons have shrunk down to microscopic size and they've come to Earth. They start, one of them comes out as an emissary and starts freezing people and there's some unpleasantness. And the science patrol interacts with the emissary uh, who tells them what's going on and the science patrol initially says like, okay, well, we're the good guys. You can live here on earth if you obey earth's laws and our customs. So good. Well, then things take a turn. And I don't know if this was a language barrier or what the issue was, but the Bolton then states uh, as the closure of negotiations, the conversation is over. We shall have the earth. A fight ensues. Ultraman then takes the microscopic spaceship that's about six feet across with all of the 2.03 billion Boltons, takes it out to sea and blows it up. Meaning parents have to explain, yes, Ultraman the good guy just killed 2.03 Boltons. Were they all combatants? Were they, what's the makeup here? So let's talk about refugee status first. And refugees are those who are outside of their country 
and, is, are, and are unable to return to it. Well, the Boltons fall into that category because their homeworld was destroyed by a mad scientist. For some reason, they couldn't go to Mars because they must have had an ancient enemy there. And thus, that raises the issue of like, well, what happens if you kill 2.03 billion of them? Well, genocide is committed when someone, whether in time of peace or in time of war, with the specific intent to destroy, in whole or in substantial part, destroys an ethnic, national, racial, or religious group, and kills members of that group. Ultraman blew up a spaceship that had 2.03 refugees. That doesn't sound good. So it raises the issue, did Ultraman commit genocide? And I'm going to go with, yes, he did. Nari, what are your thoughts? To, to literally play devil's advocate in this scenario, um, I mean, so we, in this episode, we do see the kind of destruction that a single uh, Bolton can, can, can wreak. Uh, they have the ability to control their size. Um, so, it, you know, what, when this Bolton returns to normal size or goes extra large, um, you know, he's, he's like a, a, a city destroying threat, is he not? So, you know, is it, it's, I think, entirely possible, right, that, uh, you know, 2.03 billion of them would easily overwhelm, if not massacre, the population of the Earth. Yes, but that's racially profiling that they're all a threat based upon the actions of one. That's a problem. Now, sure, they lost their homeworld, and the Science Patrol were the ones who interacted with the representative from the Balton people. So it's not exactly clear if this was hostile intent on their part. So if they were all combatants willing to kill to take the earth, okay, this sounds like it's, you know, full on war and Ultraman did what he had to do in order to win the war. On the flip side, if they're refugees and they're non-combatants and this is the actions of one, and were this, was this an issue of negotiations going sideways because of a language barrier? I mean, maybe it was cut for time in the episode and Ultraman actually did investigate as to whether or not all 2.3 billion Boltons on the ship were uniformed soldiers. But uh, I think, you know, I think it's safe to presume he did not. No, there, you just see him fly off and then there's a flash of light denoting that he blew up the spaceship. That's... You know, watching that, you're like, whoa! In a children's oh show, it was very interesting. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So yes, lots of stunning issues there for parents to talk to their children about on 2.30 Baltons just died. And we do see them again coming back because they were just too good of a villain to, to not have in this. But uh, this, this really does reek of they weren't... They, 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 I think they were refugees. So it's, it's a very problematic episode. Which then brings us to Ultra 7 and how Ultra 7 dealt with the issue of reefer madness. So Thomas, can you talk us through the Mark Town? The, the Mark Town, or as I would like to call it, the best anti-smoking campaign that Japan probably ever mounted in its history and one that should be used in the U.S. today. Um, to, to catch you up, this is a, a phenomenal episode of this, this series in which uh, the Terrestrial Defense Force is sent to this town of Kitagawa 
uh, where a series of really strange and ultimately deadly accidents seem to be occurring. Uh, there's a car chase in which uh, the, the TDF uh, are chasing a, a dump truck and they nearly get killed. There's ultimately a, a madman that goes on a rampage with a rifle, nearly killing a bunch of people. And this madness seems to touch even the TDF members. Uh, Furuhashi here, his friend Soga, uh, both go on a rampage separate rampages after smoking these cigarettes. Uh, Soga pulls a gun or a weapon on, on uh, his counterparts there and nearly kills him, uh, while Furuhashi just goes completely bananas and has to be restrained. And my favorite part of this scene is uh, the TDF member there in the back who's intrepidly found and is holding a, uh, a pipe and <laughs> is, is absolutely the key to this, this little victory here. The question becomes if Furuhashi and Soga face criminal charges for their attempted murder, attempted assault uh, that, that was committed against their fellow TDF members, are they going to be able to, to mount a successful insanity defense? The, the words, it, it's rare that you get in a, an episode or a movie like this, the actual words or that, that are mentioned for this sort of thing, but the fellow TDF members actually mention how crazy this whole scene is. They, they call it an insane asylum. When you talk about an insanity defense, it's a bit different than a typical uh, criminal defense. Normally in the United States system, when you are charged with a crime and brought to trial, you are cloaked in the presumption of innocence. And by that, I mean, you can sit uh, without having any burden to prove any ounce of innocence. And at the end of the trial, you can be found not guilty. And the jury can reach that conclusion without you as the defendant taking the stand without you putting any favorable witnesses on to, to uh, attest or testify regarding uh, your defense, without putting a shred of physical evidence in uh, to, to help your defense. You don't have to do anything as a criminal defendant in the, in the United States to be found not guilty. There are certain defenses, and the insanity defense is one of them, that are known as affirmative defenses. And this flips the script uh, of that normal, uh, that normal ability of a criminal defendant to not have to do anything. With an insanity defense, you have, actually have to put on as the defendant certain evidence to be able to meet a, an evidentiary bar to establish that you're entitled to it. If you don't meet that evidentiary bar, if you haven't uh, hit the exact amount of proof that's required, the jury might not even be able to, to debate whether you are entitled to the insanity defense. In other words, the judge in the case may not even instruct the jury that they're allowed to find you not guilty by reason of insanity. And the, the core insanity defense requires two things. One, that you suffer from a severe mental disease or defect. And two, that that severe mental disease or defect renders you unable to appreciate the nature of your actions or the wrongfulness of your actions. The problem with a standard insanity defense here is that both uh, Furuhashi and Soga don't seem to be suffering from some sort of mental disease. They're, they're not suffering from a psychosis, really. Uh, they're, they're, it, it's not some diagnosable uh, condition that we might be used to seeing in, in a court of, court of law, something that would be uh, attested to by a medical doctor or a psychiatrist. In reality, what the TDF ultimately realizes is that the cause behind their temporary insanity, if you will, is not a, a mental condition, but it's these little tiny space spores, uh, these extraterrestrial spores that are found 
within the cigarettes that they've been smoking. And that brings in a close cousin to an insanity defense, one known as an involuntary intoxication defense. And I think that's a little more pertinent to what we're talking about here, what we see in the Mark Town. What an involuntary intoxication defense requires is, again, two things. First, that the defendant became involuntarily intoxicated. Namely, as you see here, uh, neither Furuhashi nor Soga realized that these cigarettes were infused with these extraterrestrial spores. The machine that they bought them outside of a convenience store was marked normally. The, the cigarettes were a normal brand. Nothing about these cigarettes suggested that they had uh, some type of spores in them. They, they don't appear to smell any different uh, or taste any different. It's not until they're, they're well into the cigarette that they start to have this effect. And it's so amazingly represented as the, the screen sort of turns red uh, and they, they go silent. And the next prong is that that involuntary intoxication, similar to the standard insanity defense, renders the defendant unable to appreciate the nature of your actions or the wrongfulness of, of your actions. And here, remember how Furuhashi and Soga react after they, they sort of come out of this, this temporary uh, insanity. They, they pass out and then they wake back up and they don't remember anything. Uh, they, they don't seem to have any appreciation for what they've done, nor an appreciation for the fact that they've just turned uh, violent, incredibly violent, against friends. Certainly in the moment as they're attacking, they seem to have no understanding whatsoever about what they're doing until they're physically restrained and pass out as the effects of these spores uh, wear off. So what that means for all of us is that first and foremost, the, the best lesson here, uh, and this is why you, you're thankful to have a, a licensed attorney uh, breaking down these issues. Smoking kills, so don't smoke because your cigarettes uh, could be infected with extraterrestrial spores. And more importantly, unfortunately for Alien Metron, who is behind all of these uh, infused cigarettes, his plan's not going to work. If, if his plan is to, to take out the TDF uh, by getting them prosecuted for killing each other or attempting to kill each other. It's not going to work because the, I think that involuntary um, intoxication defense is going to be successful at trial. Thank you, Thomas. Let's pivot and talk about an invasion of Astro Monster, or as some know it, Godzilla vs. Monster Zero. And the big issue of, can the lady beware alarm be patented? And Bethany and Nari are going to help us understand these issues. Bethany? So yes, as Josh mentioned, in The Invasion of Astro Monster, one of the characters, Tetsuo, invents this device where the device uh, is originally intended to just emit a loud screeching noise that will ward off uh, men who are, who is a are attacking women. So a woman, if she is being attacked, will have this device, press it, it'll emit a very loud screeching noise, uh, thus, um, you know, essentially acting like a rape whistle, both alerting nearby people and uh, helping ward off the attack. Uh, Tetsuo discovers that this noise also repels the invading aliens that are coming to invade Earth. Um, and so I am going to answer the question that I'm sure was on everyone's mind when they watched this movie just immediately was, could Tetsuo get a patent on this? So 
There are generally uh, five elements that are required to get a patent on something. We're going to address the first three, uh, but as an initial matter, um, typically when you're discussing things in patent law, you have a written claim in front of you. They say the name of the game is the claim, and so much of the debate is surrounding the written language that you're looking at. Here we do not actually have a claim drafted, so we're going to speak in general terms about how the claim could have been drafted on this invention. Uh, one of the, the, the first element is that uh, the claim as drafted must be concrete. It cannot present an abstract idea. So I'm going to turn it over to Nari to ask her, is this invention concrete and not abstract? Well, so as, as Bethany, you just mentioned, um, you can't patent abstract ideas. This was most recently uh, dealt with by the Supreme Court in Alice Corp v. CLS Bank International in the context of computers. So you can't make an abstract idea patentable by saying, I'm going to have a computer do this abstract idea. Um, and so in this case, you know, again, caveat, of course, it depends on how this is actually written. Um, but if what we're talking about is, you know, I have, uh, I, I think there are noises that uh, <laughs> humans um, find irritating or otherwise attention getting. Um, and uh, that's what I'm trying to patent is the making of certain noises. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think that probably runs afoul of the uh, requirement that the claim be concrete. That's right. And on the other hand, if my claim is more specific and I say, I am patenting a device that is attuned to a specific frequency that is particularly repellent to alien monsters that does not exist in, in nature, then I think you're getting more into the realm of things that could be patentable. Now, uh, the second requirement for patentability is that the invention must be novel. It can't have already existed and it must be a new and unique concept. So Nari, do you think this is novel? So as I was mentioning in the abstract thing, uh, if what we're talking about again is just a device that's essentially a noisemaker um, or a device that you know, can, can be set to emit certain frequencies, people have known for a very long time <laughs> that there are certain noises that'll get human attention or things like that. Like women have been screaming for millennia um, and rape whistles have been around for at least decades. Uh, you know, that, that doesn't really seem to be novel. Um, you know, I, I do want to mention a little bit more concretely, there was a case involving, I believe it was cru cruciferous sprouts, um, in which Johns Hopkins University and a private company had discovered that there was a high concentration of anti-carcinogens in broccoli sprouts, basically, if you ate them in an early stage of their development, um, and then tried to sue or threatened to sue a lot of people who grew and sold broccoli sprouts. Um, and the argument there was that we had discovered a new benefit uh, of doing this. And you could kind of analogize that here, you know, we, yes, you've been, we've had noisemakers for, for a long time, um, but we didn't know before that it could repel aliens. Um, and that, that might seem to apply there. What do you think, Bethany? Well, I think that on the other side of that, so you have the previous, so these are called new use cases, right, where you discover a new use for something. Um, there are some times when you can get a patent on new uses, and that is when the new use is sufficiently different from the old use, and it wasn't, the old benefit wasn't inherent in the taking. So the, the case example I'm thinking of was a case about an ointment that was used to treat rashes on cow udders that uh, a person discovered could also be used to treat baldness. Um, and so the court in this case said, 
well, that is a sufficiently new use. It's distinct. Nobody was using it to treat baldness. Nobody was putting it on their heads before. And therefore, you can get a patent on that. So how would you respond to that? Well, I think that that might, that might be pretty fair because people were eating broccoli sprouts <laughs> for a long time before that case. Um, and in this one, you know, in particular, I, I, I do have a hard time seeing that it, if this were litigated, that this person who created this literally world-saving device would, would walk away with absolutely nothing. Um, you know, this kind of gets in also to the next prong, which is the obviousness that, you know, if, if, if the patent were just for a noise-making device, that this, you know, using it to scare away uh, people, for example, that would have been an, an obvious application of an existing technology. Um, using a specific frequency to scare away alien invaders, I don't know that anyone really thought about using that technology. <laughs> what do you think, Bethany? <laughs> Well, I think you're exactly right. I think that if you're talking about a device that is patented to just be a general alarm, scare things away, scare things away, then I think that that would be rather obvious because I think being scared of loud noises uh, is very inherent in human nature. I actually think that's one of the fears that can't be trained away from people is jumping at loud noises, but I'm not a psychologist, so don't quote me on that. Um, but again, if you're talking about a patent for a device that emits a particular frequency that has been enhanced or improved in some way to uh, affect this change in this alien behavior. And I think that while humans get annoyed at loud noises, we aren't repelled in the same way that these alien invaders were. It, there wasn't a physical reaction in the way that this device used. So I think you would argue this wasn't obvious. We had no idea that things uh, that these noises could produce these effects and therefore this was not an obvious invention. But getting back to um, the, the application that the Japanese government used in using this device to drive off the monsters, um, now, Tetsuo was very compliant with the government. He was the one who actually offered it to them, the invention to them for use. But let's say that he wasn't so compliant. Um, there is an interesting part of U.S. law that says that a patent can be designated as a military secret. What this means is that the U.S. government can say, your patent is a military secret, and that means that the U.S. government is the only one you can sell, sell your patent to or license your patent to and you must keep it secret from everyone else and you cannot sell or license it to everyone else. But it gives them no obligation to actually buy the patent. So your patent can be designated as a military secret and you can get no money from it at all because the government doesn't have to license the patent and use it if it doesn't want to. If the government does use your patent, whether your patent is secret or not, you can sue the government for infringement but you have to sue them in the Court of Federal Claims. Uh, and, you know, this has several effects. The first is that you don't get a jury trial, unlike a normal patent case, um, which means you're going to have a, a, a judge decide everything. Uh, and then the second thing is that you are limited to only uh, a remedy in the amount of a reasonable royalty. And what this says is, if you and the government were in a hypothetical negotiation uh, before the government started infringing your patent, what would the government have agreed to pay to license your patent? And so you're kind of in this weird hypothetical world, um, whereas normally in a regular court, you could get lost profits, you could get an injunction, you could get a lot of other types of remedies that are not available for you if the government infringes your patent. But, 
Bethany, I just had a, a quick question about this. Doesn't this sound an awful lot like it could be a constitutional takings case? It does, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> that is something that has been thrown out there. And I think that there have been a lot of people who have been upset to have their patents designated secret and then never get any money for them. Um, but I think it has yet to be fully litigated. So Nari, I think you are a good candidate to take that on. Someday, perhaps. <laughs> well, let's talk about plane crashes and common carriers and their duty to protect their passengers from kaiju incidents. Now, a common carrier is a train, an airplane, a ferry boat, a taxi cab, somebody who holds themselves out to carry passengers for hire. Common carriers are required to do all that human care, vigilance, and foresight reasonably can do under all circumstances to protect their passengers. How does that responsibility change in a world where there are kaiju that can impact travel? Well, let's take a look at two examples. In the Ultra Q episode, Tokyo Ice Age, it's the middle of summer and a freak blizzard hits an airport and causes an airplane that's on final approach to have its instruments and controls literally freeze and the plane crashes. And this is caused by a migrating kaiju that has a penguin-like quality that has an ice breath, is on a layover in Tokyo from Antarctica on his way to the North Pole. And like a good penguin, I don't think he flies. We don't see him take flight. It's really weird. That said, would the airline be negligent for the plane crash that happened? And let's get to that. But that's, that's one issue on is the airline negligent. Second one is Gauss eat people in the Gamera movies. And in the Hezai Gamera movie, uh, Gamera Guardian of the Universe, we see Gauss pick up a train full of people and picks up one of the cars and opens it up like a can of sardines and feeds on the people uh, like they are a giant Happy Meal and it's super disturbing. In this world, what are the responsibilities of the common carriers? In the airline's case, they're gonna be, at least for the first time, judged by a standard of negligence because of freak blizzard hitting controls freezing, you know, that's not reasonably foreseeable. So they're going to be able to not uh, get sued and be held responsible for their plane freezing and crashing because a giant penguin ice monster showed up and caused a blizzard. Not foreseeable. Gauss in the Gamma movies is a different situation because the Gauss start hanging out. They're a problem. When it's Gauss season, you shouldn't go outside at nighttime. So when you think of airplanes and trains and taxi cabs and ferry boats, they're gonna have to put policies and procedures in place to keep people safe. One thing might be, we're not gonna run at nighttime anymore because Gauss are nocturnal. There could be other measures taken such as maybe spikes on the trains so Gauss can't grab them maybe there's going to be a bright light that's emitted so a gauss will be repelled from going near the train. So there's lots of options to look at, but if they know that gauss are an issue, 
the common carriers have a responsibility to ensure the safety of their passengers because Gamera can't be there all the time. So they're going to have to be responsible and make sure their passengers are safe. Which brings us to the big issues that uh, arise in both Godzilla against Mechagodzilla and its sequel, Tokyo SOS. And Thomas and Nari, help us understand the background and the issues involved in building Mecha-G to fight Godzilla. Well, so the basic premise here, which is uh, kind of the jumping off point for this, uh, this discussion, is that in Tokyo SOS, uh, the Japanese uh, government decides to use the bones of Godzilla to create a mecha Godzilla, in order because they're they're tired of getting literally stomped all the time by kaiju, um, and have decided they finally they, they need to do something to to finally answer the threat once and for all. Um, of course, the Japanese government and its constitution is a little bit unique. I find this to be an endlessly fascinating topic, um, but it's because uh, their constitution was, of course, drafted pretty much by the United States after the uh, unpleasantness from 1939 to 1945. <laughs> um, and it essentially incorporates in very strong terms uh, uh, parts of the UN Charter. So the UN Charter of 1945 um, includes a, um, a prohibition, although it says refrain, but includes a prohibition of using a threat or the use of force um, in international relations. Um, it does, however, also have in Article 51 an important caveat that nothing in the Charter shall impair the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense. Um, and this general topic is known as the, you know, use ad bellum is, I believe, what international lawyers would call it, or the sovereign right of war. And it's kind of important to remember that uh, it, it's an inherent right of a sovereign nation to, to go to war. Now, we have lots of rules about when you can do so and things like that, but it is a right. Um, not so, however, uh, for the Japanese. <laughs> so, um, again, because the U.S. had a heavy hand in drafting their constitution, um, after the experiences of World War II, we decided that it was a good idea for them to not have a sovereign right of war. Uh, the renunciation of war, which is a preview of what it's about to do, uh, it says that uh, aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation. Um, and further, go a little further than that even, and say that in order to accomplish this, a land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. Now, of course, anyone who has paid any attention to international <laughs> affairs in the last few decades knows that, of course, Japanese government does have uh, certain things that look an awful lot like a military. However, uh, the Japanese government instead views these as uh, self-defense forces. So instead of an army, they have a ground self-defense force. Instead of an air force, they have an air self-defense force. So too for the Navy. Um, and they even go to somewhat creative measures to rename various uh, pieces of uh, uh, military equipment. A tank is a special personnel carrier. Um, but they, I mean, jesting aside, the, the Japanese people seem to really take this quite seriously. Um, there's been a lot of debate over whether or not uh, it even permits them to engage in collective self-defense, which is, for example, NATO-type agreements where countries agree to defend each other. Uh, a lot of them think that they can't even participate in peacekeeping missions authorized by the UN. Um, and so it's, it's an open question as to whether or not uh, does, does building Mechagodzilla violate Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution? Tom, do you have any thoughts on this? I do, I do. And Nari put it really well that the 
uh, Article 9 and, and its restrictions on the Japanese military are actually really, really popular amongst the Japanese people. It, it remains, despite its origins uh, and, and despite some of the connotations around it, it remains a very popular uh, law amongst the Japanese people. But <clears throat> when we talk about Mecha Godzilla, even in the context of Tokyo SOS, that popularity and, and that pull of the Japanese people between a, a desire to defend themselves and this desire to, to aspire to uh, the, the core tenets of Article 9 is really present. Uh, it, it's, not, it, it's not exactly spelled out. Nobody, nobody says Article 9 in the, in the movie, uh, but the subtext is all there because the characters, whether they are um, the fairies that, that come across or uh, come onto the screen early in the movie and they express a, uh, this desire to have Godzilla's bones return to the sea, uh, to the folks that are involved with the Mechagodzilla project itself, there's this constant tension. It's not as if everybody is on board with Mechagodzilla's existence and this idea that he's totally okay to, or it is totally okay to operate and, uh, you know, battle Godzilla and, you know, amongst the Japanese people. Uh, the fairies early in the movie uh, famously ask for the, 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 or implore for his bones to be released. They're not explicitly talking about Article 9, but I think the, the subtext is, is pretty plain there. Uh, you know, these are, are reflective of the Japanese people uh, aspiring for peace and, and the presence, the use of Godzilla's bones in Mechagodzilla, at least from their perspective, is causing these repeated attacks. But when we're talking about what Mecha, Mechagodzilla was designed for, that really cuts to the core of the analysis here. The Japanese government didn't design and implement Mechagodzilla to, to go out and wage war against other countries or to break Article 9. The intent behind Mechagodzilla was purely defensive in nature. Nari put it really, really well that they were just tired of getting stomped on repeatedly by Godzilla. Every time he comes to shore, they've got no real defense uh, to, to take him out um, uh, unless another kaiju shows up to battle him. So why not take that power into your own hands and defend yourself. Certainly, as Nari put it uh, really well earlier, Article 9 has been interpreted that the Japanese government and the Japanese people can defend themselves. And that's exactly what Mechagodzilla is. He is a large-scale, effective tactical defense against Godzilla. Uh, he serves no other purpose uh, other than fighting kaiju. And I think maybe the, the core problem here is a naming convention. Nari mentioned that, you know, an armored personnel carrier or a tank isn't necessarily known by those names. And so, you know, maybe what the Japanese government needs to do is get its public affairs officers on board in a room together, and they just need to come up with a creative new name to, to really convey exactly what Mechagodzilla is, is all about. Sounds good. I suggest special kaiju defense machine. <laughs> that that's an appropriately like complicated acronym, which is right <laughs> on point for the military. Well, let's talk about the wonderful property issues that present themselves in Mothra versus Godzilla. So let's run down the basic facts. Mothra has an egg. It's on Infant Island. There's a typhoon egg washes out to sea. The egg is recovered by fishermen. The egg 
fishermen bring it to shore. The local villagers decide to sell the egg to Happy Enterprises. Raises the issue, who is the rightful owner of the egg? Because, understandably, the fairies show up and say, give us back our egg. Well, let's talk about the, the accounting that's done in order to determine the value of the egg and that it shows no lawyers were consulted before Happy Enterprises made this purchase. Breaking down all the math adjusted for inflation, the cost of the egg would have been $34,000, nearly $35,000. And that means they're buying a lot of liability for a relatively low amount, perhaps a mid-sized sedan and you could be responsible for the destruction of a nation. That's not a good investment because Happy Enterprises decided to build an amusement park around the egg. Clearly, no lawyers were consulted. Practical aspect, $34,000 for potential deaths of thousands of people is a bad, bad investment. Now let's get into the other property issues that take place, and that is the egg is multicolored. Mothra is multicolored. There's a concept that law students learn in their first year called marks of appropriation. And the case is from the late 19th century and it deals with whaling. So when whalers would go out and kill a whale, they would mark it to show that this is our whale and we're coming back for it. And one way to do that was with something called a bomb lance, kind of like a brand, but it's a piece of iron. And if you go to Mystic Seaport, they have them and you can see them on display there. So this bomb lance would go into the whale and that'd be a way of marking it as belonging to that whaling ship. Well, similar concept with Mothra's egg. Mothra, big wings, flies, colorful, Egg, big, colorful, those marks of appropriation. Who would lay an egg like that? Moreover, when the fairies show up and say, give us back our egg, listen to them. Now, the representative from Happy Enterprise's reaction to the fairy saying, give us back our egg was, I want to buy the women. No, 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 you don't buy people. We fought a civil war over that. The South was wrong. Slavery is a human rights violation. And that was the first impulse of happy enterprises. So the egg hatches, things go sideways. And because happy enterprises bought the egg, even though they, they really should not have, they'd be on the hook. So was the egg rightfully theirs? No. Will they be able to escape in court saying like, well, we didn't know that, and uh, we, we spent $34,000. I don't think people are going to care. I think there's going to be lots of lawsuits and lots of litigation going after Happy Enterprises for all the damage that happened at the amusement park that they wanted children to go to waiting for an egg to hatch. So with that, I want to thank my co-counsel for presenting today. I want to thank the good folks at Comic-Con for having us to present. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Geeks. Please drop us a note. You, if you have questions, you can use the form on our blog, thelegalgeeks.com. And 
everyone, thank you for your time.